This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hiya, handsome. Come to join the party. Hey, hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where we go disco balls to the wall with sadness. <laughs> oh, man. Sometimes I really make myself laugh with the shit I come up with. Okay, so grab your glam and let's get into it. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez, and this week we're talking about healing anxious attachment style. If you're not familiar with attachment theory, it's essentially the idea that the way your caregivers treated you in your earliest years establishes how you attach to people or avoid attaching to people as an adult. Just to give a little background, there are four attachment styles. There's secure attachment, which is basically like winning the attachment lottery. People with secure attachment style had caregivers who consistently gave them what they needed emotionally and physically. They feel safe in the world. They generally feel like relationships are safe. They can be vulnerable and they can, generally speaking, walk away from people who are showing up with toxic behaviors. That's the one chill type. The other three are all considered insecure types. There are the two avoidant types, fearful avoidant, also called disorganized and dismissive avoidant. Fearful avoidant folks had caregivers who were consistently scary to the child. You often see this in children who had physically, mentally, or sexually abusive parents. These folks want closeness and intimacy as adults, but they don't trust people and they think they won't be loved by others. So they show up with a lot of push pull in relationships and they have a hard time keeping meaningful relationships and they can kind of be like surfacey with others. Dismissive avoidant folks weren't given what they needed in terms of the basic necessities like food and shelter, and also may have had emotionally unresponsive or physically absent caregivers. So neglect is a big root cause of this attachment style. These folks grow up to be uncomfortable with shows of affection. They struggle to show love and they find affectionate people to be clingy or overly needy. So they often avoid relationships. Then there's anxious attachment which is sometimes called preoccupied attachment. I brought this up on the last episode, but research shows that people who identify as women make up most of this category, which is a big part of why I wanted to dedicate an episode to this. And in keeping with that, this is my attachment style. And a lot of my friends also have this attachment style. This one happens when one or more caregivers were emotionally unpredictable with their children. Sometimes they were loving, sometimes they raged, sometimes they were unresponsive, etc. And as a result of that, as adults, anxiously attached folks generally feel insecure in relationships. They might have low self-esteem, they fear rejection and abandonment, they can become codependent. And they need a lot of reassurance from partners and loved ones in order to feel safe. The cool thing about attachment styles is that they're not a death sentence and they're not cookie cutters. You might have a secure attachment in some relationships or situations, but then your insecure attachment style gets triggered in other relationships. So it's definitely dynamic and the insecure attachment styles can be healed. And to help us figure out how to heal anxious attachment style in particular, I'm so happy to welcome psychotherapist Rachel Halsberg to the pod. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for being here. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Yay. Well, and to get us started, I actually looked up your birth chart because you sent over your birth info. You have sun in cancer, moon in Scorpio. Pisces rising. You're all water. Did you know about your moon and rising signs? I had no idea. I literally just like was like, oh, cancer, great water sign. And that was the extent of my knowledge. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So the water element in astrology rules emotions. So you have a lot of emotional depth to work with. All of those signs are super sensitive and, um, 
totally uninterested in keeping things surfacy, which I think is, is super key as a therapist, because you'll be able to like really dig and excavate your client's emotional landscapes. I don't know if that resonates for you, but it's, it's like really strong in your chart. No, it absolutely is so true. And I feel like it's like, not only just like in my professional life, but my personal life as well. So I feel like it absolutely checks out. (laughs) Ah, cool. Okay, cool. Well, um, also I feel like that's good for our chat today. I, I'm going to jump into my experience with anxious attachment style. You're totally welcome to interject with ideas, opinions, pertinent nineties rap lyrics, or totally chill out, eat ice cream, whatever you want to do either way at the end, I'll turn things back over to you with some questions. How does that sound? Wonderful. Sounds good. Tight. Okay. So I'll start by saying that I didn't know that I had anxious attachment style till a few years ago when my therapist was like, we need to get clear on this because I was really struggling with dating. But more importantly, I was really struggling with the whole idea of cishet men. Like I was using a very wide brush and essentially feeling like men are fucking bullshit. And also I would very much like a relationship with one. (laughs) So we spent an entire session going over a list of questions. And at the end, it was revealed that I had anxious attachment. And when I read the descriptions of what that looked like from the outside, I was like, nope, this isn't me. And the reason for that was because they described anxiously attached folks as sort of begging for attention and yelling at partners who don't provide enough reassurance. And I was very proud that I'd spent most of my life repressing my desire to do just that. (laughs) I was like, how dare you? I would never tell someone that I need them to pay more attention to me. Like that would be so embarrassing and pathetic, which makes me laugh now because I've come to realize how repressed and full of shame I was for feeling insecure about relationships and for feeling so sensitive about rejection to the point where I would just pretend that I didn't have any feelings about it at all until I was able to be alone. And then I would completely spiral out. I'm throwing that in there in case people are like, "Mm, you know, these descriptions of anxious attachment, like they, they, they don't really apply. Like I'm not feeling that. Okay, cool. Like maybe you don't have those outward behaviors, but like do you sob the instant you get in your car when no one can see you? Because, you know, but in terms of childhood, I've talked so much on this podcast about the mental health struggles, both of my parents have and the way it impacted my childhood. So I won't go too deep into that, but if you'd like to hear more illustrative examples, check out the parental rejection episode. What I will say is that my mom was very emotionally unpredictable. Sometimes she was really loving and supportive. Other times she would snap out of nowhere with rage over a situation that just like wasn't that big of a deal, like not being able to roll a sleeping bag back up to its original size, which I'm pretty sure is like how all sleeping bags work. She also relied on us a lot for emotional support when my sister and I were super young, like five and seven, and she would cry and tell us that no one loved her and she was going to be alone forever. And that kind of behavior is also common in the parents of anxiously attached children. When caregivers seek emotional comfort from their children, rather than seek to give emotional comfort to their children. But then when we would reach out to her for emotional support, she would often tell us that whatever it was, we just needed to get over it. So because she was so unpredictable, there was no telling what version of her we might get. That said, I felt way safer with her than with my dad. My mom was our main caregiver. We lived with her almost all the time. But I think if I had been raised with my dad instead, I would have developed fearful avoidant attachment style. My dad wasn't physically or sexually abusive, but he was consistently verbally and mentally abusive. We could never do anything right. If we made a mistake, he would rage till we were sobbing. He was uncomfortable with physical affection. I was essentially terrified of him and simultaneously wanted to break the code that would make him love me. So there was a lot of push pull with him, but he, he was the push and I was the pull. And as an adult woman today, I feel that same push pull when I think about men in the abstract, which makes me 
kind of think that I have fearful avoidant attachment to the idea of men that was established early on with my dad. That said, once I get involved with someone, my internal landscape, the emotions I experience look like textbook anxious attachment. I get really anxious if I'm left on red. I need reassurance that the other person is into me and I can easily feel abandoned, disposable, or like I'm just not important to the other person. And I'll also say, I don't only feel this when I date. I've also experienced anxious attachment with my platonic relationships. And I won't really get into this, but I'll put it out there. I've, I've definitely experienced it in my relationship to the idea of God. It's God has felt very um, unsafe for me. Okay, so let's break down some of the big traits of anxious attachment style and look at them a little closer. The underlying belief with anxious attachment is that this other person is probably going to leave you because love isn't safe and you're not good enough. For me, I'll say this feels less like this person is going to leave me, even though that's there, but more like there's a voice in the back of my head saying, you're fucked up, you're disposable, you're defective. So you're going to be alone forever. So there's this like deep sense of loneliness attached to anxious attachment. In other words, it feels much bigger than any one individual who comes into or out of my life, but these individual relationships trigger the fear. This has shown up for me in a few ways. In romantic relationships, that's manifested for me in like this, this deep fear of being cheated on, or that if I have a boundary with a person, or if I like express anger, they'll just replace me with someone who's easier, quote unquote. I want to say here that I think that this is in part because my dad in his life has been a prolific cheater, just monumentally (laughs) successful at it. And when we were little, my mom leaned on us for support a lot when it came to feeling betrayed by him, feeling abandoned, replaced, et cetera. So I have that sort of original wound, but I also think there's a lot of messaging to women around cishet men, not wanting you, if you're a feminist, if you're angry, if you have big emotions. And so I think the culture also sets us up for that to some extent as well. But the truth is that even when I'm not in a relationship, this comes up for me. I remember about 10 or so years ago, I was at work and a friend of mine who I worked with, she dated constantly. She was always dating or sleeping with someone and she wasn't intimidated by the dating game at all or by men at all. And one day I was trying to figure out what to text this guy that I wanted to meet up with. And she told me I should end the text with a little X, like XO, you know, but just the X. And I was so afraid to do that. It felt so vulnerable and scary for me. And she was like, not maliciously at all, but she was teasing me about it. And basically she was just like, geez, Remy, you're such a prude. It's not a big deal. And we laughed about it. I did include the X, by the way. And then when I got to my car, I scream cried the whole way home. I mean, I'm laughing about it now, but man, I was viscerally triggered. And what triggered me was my belief that something was really wrong with me. I was defective. I didn't know how to flirt. I didn't know how to interact with men. I wasn't like my friend who could date super easily. And because of that, I was going to be alone forever. So again, it was just this like fear of being alone. So that's just to illustrate that sometimes you don't even need to be in a relationship or to be dating someone for that anxious attachment bomb to go off. This actually came up for me recently with a close girlfriend of mine. We'd been talking about potentially moving to a new city together. And right around that time, she went to go visit some other friends. And as soon as she got back, she was like, yeah, I wish I could just move with them. I'd move all my stuff out there right now if I could. And my anxious attachment just went into overdrive. I was like, oh, right. I'm disposable. I don't matter. I'm just the person you kill time with until you can figure out how to hang out with the friends you actually care about. So even friendships can kick my anxious attachment into gear. I'll also say that in both of those scenarios, I hid what I was feeling. In the first one, I waited till I got in my car. And then I just like let loose. And in the second, I just avoided my friend and had my freak out privately until she called me and was like, 
Hey, I need to call you out for being weird. And then we just talked about it. So just a reminder that your outward expressions of anxious attachment to the people involved don't always look like your internal landscape. Another big one that comes up with anxious attachment folks is that if someone rejects them or doesn't respond to their needs, they often blame themselves and chalk it up to something being wrong with them. I think I've talked about this incident before, but it bears repeating here. When I was 18, the guy I was dating who I dated on and off since high school cheated on me with this girl he met in Mexico. After Mexico, he told me he met this girl, but they were just friends and they were going to go on a camping trip together. <laughs> oh God, I was very young, which I believed because I, I, you know, I totally trusted this person. But after that camping trip, when I was supposed to hear from him and I didn't, like he just wasn't returning my calls, I finally reached out to a mutual friend about it and he broke down and told me what was going on. This guy had brought this woman down to LA where we both lived at the time from this camping trip. He was taking her to Venice beach to Disneyland to wherever the fuck and was just leaving me on red. And all my friends knew about it and were hanging out with both of them that whole time. And no one had told me. So it was, it was a shit show and I was definitely angry about it. And of course felt deeply betrayed, but I never had a thought like, wow, this person you know, maybe is a sociopath or wow, this person is totally unfit to be in the kind of relationship that I'm looking for. Instead, I had the very conscious thought that he never would have done all of that if I'd just been prettier. And soon after that, I developed an eating disorder, thinking that getting skinnier would essentially prevent me from being rejected and abandoned in relationships again. So that's one clear example of how people with anxious attachment might blame themselves. Here's another example that might be helpful. I stayed romantically involved with someone for 10 years. And when I say romantically involved, there was no romance. I was sleeping with this guy. And this guy was not very good in bed, wasn't particularly nice to me, wasn't very interesting to talk to, wasn't fun or sweet or exciting to be around, like really didn't offer me anything at all but I stayed, I stayed involved because he wasn't interested in me beyond sex, which sounds crazy, but he essentially triggered my sense that I wasn't worthy. And as a result, I was consumed with winning his affections and proving my worth. I was like, Oh, I just need to be more interesting, smarter, edgier, cooler, more talented. The story in my head was that he was actually very interesting and sweet and affectionate just not with me because I wasn't enough. And because that was my come from, he would breadcrumb and, you know, just give me a little bit of hope. And I would dive right back in thinking, oh, this time I'll be sexier or funnier or whatever. And he'll be into me. Finally, after many years, I was like, wait, what? Like, who cares how he feels about me? I'm not into him. Another way that anxious attachment can manifest for people is a sort of hyperactive attunement to the needs of others. This is a blessing and a curse, but essentially what happens with a lot of us is because our childhood environments were so unpredictable, we become really good at figuring out what's going on with someone else, i.e., you know, our caregivers when we were kids, what kind of mood they're in and what, you know, what would help them feel better and then doing that for them without being asked. It's a means of survival for us as children. And, and while it can sort of, you know, set a person up to be emotionally generous, what's happened with me many times is I, I won't vocalize my needs. In fact, I think for a long time, I wasn't even aware that my needs were there, like that I even had them because I was so not used to my emotional needs mattering. And then I'd feel really resentful that no one was trying to figure out what I needed. In other words, it's just like codependency city. So that's fun. And I think it's important to say that this thing about people with anxious attachment, blaming themselves and being more attuned to others' needs, this really sets us up to be more susceptible to narcissists. If we haven't worked on ourselves because when people are like, I'm rejecting you or I'm treating you like shit, if we're like, oh my God, oh, I really suck. 
yeah, narcissists love that because they can swoop in and be like, yeah, you do suck. You're so lucky to be with me. You're so lucky I put up with you. And then we go, oh my God, so true. Like, let me anticipate all your needs and apologize for being too needy or having boundaries or whatever. So if that sounds familiar and you haven't already, definitely check out the episodes on narcissism and get some support with that. I'll end with jealousy. Jealousy is another common trait of anxiously attached folks. And what's so funny for me about this is that jealousy comes out for me a lot in my friendships, which is something I wasn't even aware of until at some point in my late twenties, I was over at my friend Emily's house on Easter. And she like very delicately asked me like, Hey, would it be okay with you if I invited my friend from high school over for a while? And I was like, of course, why would you feel like you had to ask? And she was like, well, you can just get kind of possessive sometimes. <laughs> and it wasn't until she said that, that I realized, oh shit, that is absolutely true. I would feel really territorial with my friends and kind of want to keep them to myself. And like, I don't know, at the time I laughed it off, but later down the road, I noticed that it caused me a lot of pain in my friendships because the root of that jealousy was this sense that they loved their other friends more, or they would just swap me out for someone else eventually. You know, that feeling that I was going to be abandoned and alone. Okay. So what has been helpful for me in healing anxious attachment? The first thing has been very simply understanding what it is and how it works. Because in moments where before I would think I'm crazy, I'm too emotional, I'm too sensitive. Now I can be like, oh, my anxious attachment is being triggered. And I want to say for me personally, I can't speak for anyone else. But for me, when I feel that deep abandonment or that fear of abandonment, that's when suicidal ideation has come up because the pain is so intense. It's not at all chill. And I want to be transparent and not glib or sounding like there's a quick fix for the pain. I will say though, that with the work I've done, when I feel that visceral pain come up, instead of entertaining the suicidal ideation and actually being in it, I think, okay, I'm having an anxious attachment attack. This pain will subside. And so will these thoughts, you know, like I'm going to be okay because Suicidal ideation is really about trying to escape the tremendous emotional pain. It's not really about wanting to die. But yeah, without knowing that that's what's happening to me, without knowing about anxious attachment, I, I wasn't able to find any level of objectivity or get any room between myself and, and my pain. So educating myself about my attachment style has been number one. The next really big one is reparenting techniques. I talked about this on the parental rejection episode, but because attachment styles are directly related to how you were parented, it's relevant here as well. Reparenting is the work of visualizing traumatic moments in your childhood, and then in the visualization, inserting an adult version of yourself into the memory and being with that child version of yourself giving that child what they needed, telling them what they needed to hear, soothing them, maybe visualizing holding them in your lap or letting them cry, you know, kind of being like, Hey, you know what? Let's go to Disneyland. And then like imagining the two of you in Disneyland or whatever it is, it's basically rewiring your brain so that this child version of yourself gets to experience feeling seen, feeling safe, feeling protected, feeling important, prioritized, you know, essentially feeling loved. And what happens when you do enough of that work is that your brain starts to change its version of love from love is unpredictable. Love is scary. It's anxiety producing. It's a roller coaster to love is safe. It's connected. It's vulnerable. It's kind. It's supportive. I highly recommend doing that work with a therapist because when you haven't experienced healthy parenting firsthand, you don't always know what you need. You don't always know 
what your inner child might need to hear in that moment. And that's when a therapist can say like, okay, ask them this question, you know, offer them this, you know, and, and it's really helpful. So ask your therapist about it. If you haven't ever done that, that kind of work before. Another big one for me has been moving away from I'm defective. I'm too much and moving toward I need physical touch in my relationships, platonic and romantic. I need verbal support. I deserve to feel safe. Here's what safe looks like to me. I deserve to feel valued. Here's what valued looks like to me. I'm not perfect at this, but I'm slowly getting so much better at speaking up when I'm not getting my needs met. Not always right in the moment. In fact, usually it takes me a minute but way more than ever before in my life, I'm able to voice what I need. And the last one I'll end with, and I just can't emphasize enough how important this is, but boundaries. When your come from is, I'm not good enough to be loved, it's nearly impossible to have healthy boundaries. Being able to say, you know, I love myself and I don't deserve to be breadcrumbed or left on red for days at a time or lied to or dismissed or manipulated or whatever. So I think I'll let this person know that this isn't working, you know, knowing that they might leave. If I say that, you know, I think I'll block this person on Insta because it's just a loop that we're in. I think I'll delete that person's number. Finally, setting boundaries to create space for people who really value you, who are concerned with your well-being. That's key to healing this wounded voice telling you that love isn't safe because you are the parent now of your inner child. Like your parents, whatever happened, happened. But now you are in charge of that inner child inside you and of your tender heart. And just like you wouldn't take your three-year-old child to a mean, cold-ass babysitter, <laughs> you know, don't subject yourself and your hopes and your vulnerabilities and your wounds and your affections to people who don't know how to treat those with loving care, romantic, platonic, whatever the case. Okay, Rachel, how is it going over there? You had touched on so many different things. And first of all, I want to say like, it's so awesome that you've done so much reflection and so much work on yourself because you just were able to identify a lot of key components that know that don't just like belong with anxious attachment in itself, but being able to like heal as a human and as an adult. So I give you a lot of credit for that. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. I, uh, I love it. <laughs> Hence I made a pot about it. Yeah. I love healing. I think it's so cool. Um, and also has saved me like literally saved my life. So thank you for saying that. That's cool. Um, and I have so many questions that I'm dying to ask you. So let me start with this one. There's something particularly difficult about anxious attachment style because we are very clear that we want love like a lot, but also simultaneously feel like love is inherently unsafe and people are untrustworthy and like, and we aren't good enough, you know, all of that. It's not a great combo, you know, what can we do to bridge that gap mentally and emotionally? Yeah. And I think as you were sharing your story too, you touched upon a really key component about that inner child. And I think first and foremost, it's being able to understand that although we're adults, we still have that childlike mind within us and being able to acknowledge that there is that transitional phase, right? Of like being able to self-soothe and understand that we're still that same person, even though we have different shared experiences um, and be able to kind of create our own mindsets now doesn't mean that we don't carry trauma and carry our past experiences with us. So really feeling and understanding that that child is still in us and being able to separate the two and like self-soothe that is really, really key. And also then taking it a step further, really being able to like identify what safety is. Mm -hmm. I think so often in adulthood now, what seems unsafe is we're able to bring in past unsafety components. And then we just think that that's like end all be all. And the difference now is that we're actually able to really just separate it to say, well, actually what makes me feel safe? What felt unsafe and how can we challenge it? Um, I love that. Sorry, no, I don't mean to cut you out. That was, I got really excited. Yes. Okay. So yeah. Thinking, thinking about what safety means for us. Yes. Go on. 
Totally. And I think that means something different for everyone, right? And it's really being able to identify some qualities. What might feel safe for me might not feel safe for you. And it's challenging that mindset of like, what do I value? Do we feel like, okay, really feeling heard, really feeling like there's this open, vulnerable space that creates safety? Is respect one of these values that helps us create safety and being really, really key on that? Mm, Oh my God. I love that so much. It's so wild that you bring that up too, because one thing I've been reflecting on lately is like, what does it mean to feel safe in the world? Right? Like, what does it mean? And I kind of alluded to this, but I've really struggled in my relationship with, you know, God or the universe or whatever that thing is for us. Is that thing safe? Right. And I think for me being raised in a household that felt just inherently unsafe, I projected that onto my understanding of God and was just like, God is unsafe, right? The world is unsafe. Any, you know, a bad thing could happen at any time. (laughs) And so I love that question and, and not just like in a relationship, but also in the world, what makes me feel safe? If I, if I experience that anxiety, um, cause, cause for me having anxious attachment, the story sounds like God, um, loves other people, but not me. And so, and therefore I'm not safe. And so, okay, in that moment, maybe what I need is, um, maybe I need to get into nature if I'm feeling that maybe safety means, um, connecting with a specific like deity or angel, you know, like Archangel Michael, you know, if you're into woo woo stuff, or if you're not, you know, Jesus or like whatever it is, you know, um, taking a minute to connect with what feels safe. I love that. That's so good. And really also paying attention to like basic needs, right? I think sometimes when we think about safety, it's like, oh, how are we expanding upon this like really big, broad thing? And it's like, well, how can we actually just make it really small? And how do we feel like our basic needs are being met? And starting there and building the building blocks up, so to speak, is also really important. Like, am I actually like in shelter? Do I feel like I have food around me? Am I like outside taking deep breaths and like starting with the basics and then building up too, before we can even get into qualities? Yeah. Good one. Totally. Cause sometimes we're just fucking hungry and (laughs) we're like, yeah, let's, uh, let's not neglect our physical needs. Um, okay. My next question is a fear of abandonment is at the root of anxious attachment style. And when that pain comes up, it can feel really despairing. I know for me, I've talked about suicidal ideation. How do we work with that despair in healthy ways? Yeah, it's, um, it's a really tough one. And I think what I often tell my clients too, is really separating what is fear and what is fact. Mm. And so often we have to be able to really identify that. Like, is this a fear can just be a fear, right? It could feel really real. That's not to negate it, but it's really important to see that fear is sometimes just that and not necessarily our potential reality. And so really separating fear versus fact and that being separate is like bottom line, really uh, like important to recognize. And second is really like this fear is coming is just like a protective mechanism in general. Like we have fear for a reason. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to like pay tribute to that. We're almost like embracing this fear, so to speak, because it is, it's an important component as well. Like the fear stems from something. It does keep us safe at times. If we don't fear something, then we're going to get hit by a car. You're going to be able to burn your hand or whatever it is. And so it's recognizing that it's okay to have fear, but how much weight, and how much control are we giving that fear mm-hmm. and getting in the right headspace to separate that? Mm. Yeah. And so what do we do if we're like, wow, I'm giving this fear a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. What, what, what did, what did, what does the next step look like at that point? Is it kind of, is it writing down what's real and what the fear is or, or what is, what do the steps look like? First of all, identifying that this is fear is like number one, mm. taking it a step further is really being able to regulate our nervous system. When we feel like we're kind of like in this like unbalanced state, how can we really respond in like this rational way? So like regulating our nervous system, whether it's taking a couple of deep breaths or kind of feeling like you're having grounding exercises by paying attention to our senses. I often like recommend like a hand over heart kind of action where we feel like we're really being like one with our bodies and our brains and like kind of repeating that we're safe of really kind of coming to this baseline too is so important. Mm-hmm. And then also understanding like it's okay that we're having distress. 
it's like a natural human tendency to be in a distressed state. And so recognizing that we're there and we're kind of adapting to learn how to like tolerate it. Mm, I love that. I love that so much because like I mentioned, my come from was if I had a big emotion, Mm -hmm. I, there was something wrong with me because that's, I wasn't really allowed to have those growing up. So just, just allowing, I love that. Just allowing yourself to, if you're distressed being like, yeah, this is normal. Like this happens to human beings and it's okay. And you don't have to, there's nothing wrong with you, you know? Cause I think part of my thing was feeling the feeling and then feeling ashamed for having the feeling. Totally. I wrote, I kind of made a mental note for myself too, as you were sharing your story and you said that it was really difficult for you to actually even just like normalize sharing a feeling Mm, and like, how can we kind of get into this space that like feelings are part of like the human process and feelings are okay. And so if we can just normalize sharing feelings in general, then we can start to ask for what we need. We can't ask for what we need if we don't even know how we're feeling because we were never able to really express it. Yes. Oh my God. That is so huge. Um, asking for what you need when you, if, you know, we talk about anxious attachment, we talk about unpredictable, emotionally unpredictable, um, households. And for, I think a lot of us, it wasn't okay to, um, to say like, Hey, I'm feeling, sad or I'm feeling upset. I know in, in my household, if I told my mom, Hey, when you did this, it hurt my feelings or it upset me or whatever. She would immediately say, you're attacking me and I don't deserve this. And that was it. Like we're cutting this conversation off. And so, um, I, I would, I would have so much fear around just being like, Hey, uh, this is how I feel when I, when I, as an adult got into relationships and I read a book, my therapist had me read a book last year that basically outlined what it like conversations between people who had secure attachment style. (laughs) And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like these people just say I'm hurt. Mm -hmm. Like these people just say, um, I I'm, I'm jealous, you know, like it, to me, it felt, it was like mind blowing because I had never, I had learned that it just wasn't safe to do that. And it felt so vulnerable reading these conversations and looking at like what secure attachment style actually looks like in practice. And it was just really humbling. So I was like, shit, I have a lot of work to do <laughs> before I can get there. But yeah, I think you're so um, spot on with that. Absolutely. Totally. And you got the message essentially, like your feelings aren't valid, right? If you hear someone say, don't like a mom's trying to be whatever by saying like, don't cry. But what someone translates that is, is your feelings aren't true. Right. But don't cry means don't be sad essentially. And so if we can't be sad, how do we learn then to actually share as an adult? Hey, I'm sad. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm a child of the eighties. And, um, I think especially that parenting culture was a lot like, if you're going to cry, go to your room. I heard that all the time growing up. I think a lot of kids did at that time. Um, you know, and then I think also their generation was like, kids are meant to be seen and not heard. Mm -hmm. And so this whole, this is, you know, a lineage of trauma, right? It's like, this has been passed on. And we are unlearning it at this point. Like our generation is like, yeah, actually feelings matter. (laughs) Absolutely. Turns out. Okay. On that note, what does unhealed anxious attachment style look like in a relationship and what can anxiously attached folks who are already in relationships do with their partners to create a healthier dynamic? 
Yeah, it's such a great question. And I find that happens a lot. um, And it's posed with a lot of my clients as well. And it's really important for us to focus on how we're starting to heal versus being unhealed. And what I mean by that is that there are going to be these small little moments where we notice healing has evolved, even though it doesn't feel like we are actually quote unquote healed. Mm. And so it's really important to be able to like kind of distinguish, like, are we healing versus like being unhealed? healed. And that kind of gives us this like empowering mindset when we're paying tribute that we're like already started the process of healing, even though it doesn't feel like it's come to like fruition. I find so, so important, like first and foremost. Okay. Totally. And then on top of that, it's really kind of asking ourselves, like, what would we need to see or feel that could like increase our comfort and decrease our anxiety? Mm -hmm. And this is really important to kind of note if people aren't familiar of like really paying attention to our love languages, because some people are so different for like what they actually need and how they're going to feel loved. If I feel like I need an embrace and like need that like warm hug to actually feel like I'm lovable or receiving love in this way, but someone else goes, oh, well, I put the dishes away and I'm showing you that. How can we be able to kind of get on the same page of like actually acknowledging actually how we see love? Oh my God, this one is so huge. And I love that you brought this up because I have been like, I kind of was like, oh, I think all the attachment styles, probably, probably not gift giving, but like, I was like, oh, all of the attachment styles, I mean, attachment styles, all of the uh, love languages are, um, my love language. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I think they all communicate love to me, but recently I've learned that physical affection is a non-negotiable for me. I really need it to feel like I'm receiving love. And I also, I also really need verbal. Like I need people being like, like gassing me up and being like, you're fucking awesome. And I love you so much. And I'm like, I need, it's so interesting. Cause I was talking to someone once who was like, no, I don't, I don't need, um, words of affirmation because people could be lying to you. I need acts of service. And I was like, that makes sense, I guess, logically, but it's just not what's true for me. Like I need the words and I need the physical affection. I need that. Mm -hmm, Totally. And like going off of that, Ben, it's like really being able to kind of reflect, like what is something specific, like your partner does that like kind of triggers that anxiety, right? Right. If like we're feeling like, oh, I'm not getting that. How can we kind of advocate? And I think also when you were sharing before, like it's really difficult to like ask for your needs. I think it's so empowering too, to kind of draw attention. Like it's difficult for you to ask for this, but you're doing it anyway. And you're kind of like taking the driver's seat in that way of saying, Hey, it's so difficult kind of for me to ask for this hug, but I really would love that because that's the way I'm receiving it. Oh, I love that because not only does that help you acknowledge yourself, but it also Mm -hmm. is a a moment of like intimacy with this person that you're talking to. Like you're letting them know like, Hey, I'm being vulnerable here. I'm putting myself out here in a way that I, that is, that's a challenge for me because I really care. Absolutely. And Uh, I also encourage like for clients that have a difficult time, if like you're just seeing, it's really hard for you to be able to kind of, you know, identify what it means with your relationship if to like create a healthier dynamic, definitely see a therapist to be able to work through together, recognize how you're seeing the relationship through your interactions and like understanding how you can grow together. Mm, yeah, I love that. I've noticed that for me, anxious attachment applies to everything. And I kind of talked about this, like to how I see the world, how I see the universe, that feeling of being unsafe isn't something that's like neatly contained into a corner of my life. So for those of us with anxious attachment, how can we start to think differently about the world? So it doesn't feel like an unpredictable place where the other shoe is always about to drop. I think when we're feeding ourselves a message, our instinct as humans is to be able to validate that. So if we're Mm. seeing something unsafe, we're coming up with examples of how to see something unsafe. Mm. We're feeling unloved. We're going to come up with examples of like how we're feeling unloved. Mm. And it's recognizing that that can be our first thought. And that's absolutely okay. It's really normal. Being able to pause to say, 
well, what's a challenge to that? How can I see the contrary, right? If we're saying our first thought's going to be what is unsafety, well, then what is safety mm-hmm. or what is love? And feeling like there are qualities in the people that provide us mm-hmm. that safety, vulnerability, you know, feeling hurt, et cetera. And so it's really important for us to kind of just take a moment to say, was my go-to unsafe? Well, how can I challenge that? Mm. Yeah, that's you know, it's so interesting you say that because even in my work where I'm kind of trying to sift through these childhood moments and understand like, oh, in this traumatic moment with my parents, um, you know, I felt really unloved, et cetera. And, but also understanding that just because my parents had a specific reaction, it doesn't mean that they didn't love me even though I felt unloved, it, it maybe means that they weren't completely prepared for parenthood, which is a monumentally, you know, challenging task. But like, if I get into the mindset when I'm doing this work, if I get into the mindset of like, Oh, this, all this trauma happened and I, and therefore I wasn't loved versus all this trauma happened. And therefore my parents really were struggling with being parents and they were struggling with their own mental health. You know, that really shifts things for me. And I want to say that because I think a lot of times when we're thinking about childhood and we're thinking about ways that our parents showed up, it's easy to like either villainize or to, um, yeah, feel like this is all proof that they didn't care. Right. Instead of being like, yeah, this is proof that they were struggling. Sorry, I cut you off. No, you're totally good. I think it was like, it was made me think about what you were sharing earlier today about um, a note that you kind of gave all of your listeners in terms of like your reparenting technique. Mm. And I like really like to think about that too, is like, how are we almost like normalizing the human experience rather than feeling like our parents have this like huge weighted label. And it's hard because we're, we're taught that parents, you know, are above us and they see things differently and they're like end all be all. And really it's like, when it comes down to it, how are they just human? And us being able to heal ourselves through that of like, yes, they're a parent, but what does a parent mean? How do we just like normalize what it means to be a human? Mm, ugh. I love, I love, this is actually so healing for me right now. Just saying like, it's just being a human because it was so my, um, what I took on was having feelings is wrong. It's shameful and it's bad and it's not safe. If I have a big feeling, it's just not. Okay. And hearing you say repeatedly that like, this is just normal, like having these feelings is just normal. And these experiences is just part of being a human. It's sort of like, I think maybe like through the culture and through my childhood and whatever, there was a lot of gaslighting around what emotions were. And it's this process of being like, yeah, it's totally okay. <laughs> it's totally normal. It makes you totally normal. I think also like kind of, this is a side note, but I want to say it. I feel like there's sort of this, like the fuck boy culture of, um, which is not, I'm not attributing that to any specific person or, or even sex or gender. I think it's this culture that we have of, I don't care. Sure. Like, I don't care. This doesn't affect me. You don't affect me. Um, And I think I really, growing up, I was like, everything affects me. (laughs) And so I was like, why can't I be like these other people who just don't get affected? And I, I want to be the one who leaves people on red. I want to be the one, you know, and it's like, um, yeah, it's, they're actually having feelings too. Maybe they're not sharing them, but like, if we can get to a place where it's just it's normal for us to share our feelings, then we're that much closer to finding uh, relationships that are secure. Yes, absolutely. And I feel like that overall theme, right? Of like, how do we normalize and spread the word to like normalize sharing feelings? Girl, I get it. I started a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. um, My last question. Um, I've read that one of the only ways that you can heal anxious attachment is through a relate a relationship with someone who has a secure attachment style, which, you know, is kind of depressing for those of us who aren't in a relationship, much less a relationship with a securely attached person. 
And I, I want to say like, I think that is one way, but assuming some of us don't have partners, what are some of the big steps we can take to really start to heal our attachment style? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, first and foremost, I think like understanding the narrative or like the lens that we see something through really understanding that we can just always make changes, right? We're not just stuck in this, in this one state, we're able to make change. And I think that's a really empowering mindset and two, really seeing relationships as a whole, right? Of not just this romantic relationship, but what are these other relationships in our lives that make us again, with this theme of safety, feel safe, feel heard, feel secure, whether it's through our friendships, whether it's through coworkers, whether it's through our siblings or other familial relationships and being able to pick and choose all these other relationships to feel not only like, oh, giving us the strength to like potentially find this like secure relationship, so to speak, and how we kind of find security within ourselves. Mm. I just want to reiterate kind of what you're saying. I, this idea of like really identifying what makes you feel safe is so I've, I've never had anyone kind of lay it out that way. And I think that is so important. And also I just, this is a side note. I've become much more woo woo. Um, well, I've always been kind of woo woo, but I think lately I have connected with it in a way that feels really good for me. And literally last night I said to like, I don't know if I said it to God, like to God or angels or whatever, but I said the beings who protect me, like I I need help feeling more safe in the world. What, what can I like, I need you to reveal something to me about feeling more safe in the world. And then we have this conversation today, (laughs) Um, which is cool because like, you know, I'm also healing my relationship to the universe, but um, yeah, this, this idea of like quite simply write down what makes you feel safe. Mm-hmm. get really clear on it in your mind, because then you can start asking for it. You can start seeking it out. You can start being aware of it when you have it and also being really aware of it when you don't have it. Right. Because sometimes your triggers are at work instead of your, um, conscious like identifiers, like, Oh, I don't feel safe because I don't like, I don't have physical affection here. Oh, I don't feel safe because when people, um, for me, I know a big one is like, if someone starts screaming out of nowhere, that's really triggering for me. Mm -hmm. And so like, that's, you know, like, oh, I, what does make me feel safe is when we just talk through an issue calmly, you know, um, knowing, I think like, I, I swear this weekend, I'm going to sit down and write out the things that make me feel safe. Cause I think that's such I think that's such helpful advice. Yeah. I think that one's really good. So important. And it's so hard because it's like, we can't, you know, change the past of everything, but we absolutely can change how we view things, the lens that we're looking through things now and being able to say like, okay, well, this individual, let's just say like potentially has this other attachment style. How can we work through or picking someone that feels like more fitting that doesn't necessarily feed into our insecurities, but we have to be really, really sure of like what those are. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think so often we're just, we're just kind of operating on autopilot. Yeah. And having, having that clarity, I think is such a game changer, such a shifter. Yeah. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on. I have loved having this conversation with you. Yeah. I love being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yay. And if people want to get in touch with you, is there a way that they can contact you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Our practice is Manhattan Wellness. You can go visit our website at manhattanwellness.org and um, check all all of our providers there too. Okay, cool. Yay. And if y'all want to get a hold of me, I am at patramaparty at gmail.com. I'm also on uh, Insta at Remy's, R-E-M-E-E-Z. And if you have a minute, it would really mean so much. Please Um, like comment, subscribe. It really does help. And in the meantime, baby, enjoy the party. Bye.